Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the the privilege of being able to just be together this morning, the men and the women um, in Wellspring and in Build. Lord, I pray that you would just bless our time, that we would, um, as we draw near to you in your word, um, through your word, that we would sit under your word, that we would have humble hearts, and we would long for you to speak uh, to us as our God and our Savior, And that we would learn um, from Revelation 2, from the church that you knew and loved so much and cared for. You spoke so clearly to them. And Lord, there's so much about them that we need to be careful of, that we need to be on guard for. Um, And so, Lord, I pray that you would just um, draw near to us as we now draw near to you. And bless our time together, Lord. Thank you so much for the, the year that you have given to us. Thank you for the faithfulness of these men and women here who have come and um, have made many sacrifices to be here. I pray, Lord, that you would um, take the fruit from this year and that, Lord, you would help it to grow and multiply um, and glorify yourself through um, Lord, what we're trying to do here and what we're trusting in you to do. Lord, we want to be godly men. We want to be godly women. We need your help for that desperately. And we recognize that there are some spiritual disciplines that we can um, participate in and we can put our hand to that will um, be a means of grace from you to us. So we pray that you'd help us to be faithful in those things. And please bless our, our feeble, weak efforts, Lord. We are weak and you are strong. We are not counting on ourselves at all to... And looking to our own strength, Lord, we do not want to do that. We know we are prone to do it. Help us to not. Lord, help us to just to turn to you on a daily basis. Look away from ourselves on a daily basis to you. And trust in you as we pick up the, the disciplines, Lord, that you have given to us. Uh, in your word, in prayer, in worship so that we grow closer to you, so that we love your Son more dearly, so that we obey him more faithfully, loyally, that we may fear you more, that we may rejoice and delight in you more. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to review through um, the first three disciplines for the guys, which are the only three disciplines for the ladies. Um, Wellspring and build overlap at that point in those first three disciplines. Um... The heart, the home, and the ministry. Remember that, um, come on in. Don't worry, that's the only door to come in, so come on in. Um, let's review through those. Uh, starting with the heart. The heart is who you are inwardly. Speaking before God, it's, it's your inner person, your inner man, your inner woman. And the call in Scripture, God's plan in Scripture, is that His Word and your heart would be in a full contact sport with one another, right? Um, From as early on in the pages of Scripture, like Deuteronomy 6, God's intent is that uh, the words of His law would be upon your heart, He said to Israel. All the way to Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is living and active, and it is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart of the inner man. And so, if that's the plan that God has had from the beginning to the end of his revelation, um, 
we need to make sure that our hearts, our inner person, who we are before God, is coming before God's Word on a regular basis, primarily to know God, to love God, um, to know more of what kind of God He is, what He is like, um, to know what His commands are, um, that we would grow our relationship with Jesus Christ. And um, so that's what we do. We want to make that be a, a spiritual discipline in our lives, that we come before God's Word on a daily basis to know Him. That can take place in a variety of forms. Um, we could maybe break it down into two. One is where you would sit away from the world, away from other people, and you would spend time in God's Word, you alone, in a very worshipful manner. That's the point, is to pray. It should be a prayerful pursuit of God and His Word, that you're, you're reading of the Bible... Um, and you are praying to the God of the Bible would shift in back and forth, in and out of reading and praying. You discover something about God. You sin gets pressed upon you. Um, you become convicted of it. You confess it. You seek forgiveness from Him. You marvel at who He is in Scripture. You plead for help with the commands that are in Scripture. You move back and forth in a worshipful and prayerful manner in your reading. Then at some point you, you close your Bible and you go off into your day. And you do not want to walk away from God's Word at that point into your day. The other part of shepherding your heart with God's Word comes throughout the day. That you must be thinking carefully throughout the day in your conversations and in your attitudes, in your deeds, in your desires, in every relationship that you step into. You're thinking, I'm, God's Word needs to be brought to bear on my heart right now in this situation. And that's the hard thing. It's easy to read your Bible in the morning. Okay, so maybe it's sometimes hard to do that too. But it's easy to walk away from that and think you're okay, you've done what you needed to do, and you just go now live your day, and you just do it. And whether or not you think of God and His Word, I mean, I don't know if you're like me, but you can find that you've gone hours. Look, I sit in an office surrounded by Christians, and I write sermons, and I study stuff, and I can find that my heart is cold and drifting from the Lord. And so there needs to be a spiritual discipline throughout the day where you're bringing God's Word back to bear on your heart and dragging yourself before God's Word again, thinking carefully about how to uh, just shepherd your heart with God's Word. So that's discipline one. If And, and that, I tell you, if... If you do that, if you labor for the rest of your life to be that kind of Christian, the other things will come into play. They will, God will take care of the other things. But if you leapfrog that, if you kind of wink at that, like or give a nod to, yeah, that's important, but don't discipline yourself to be that kind of a woman or that kind of man, anything else you do becomes hollow. Because the kind of Christian that's doing whatever that Christian does is is not the kind of Christian they should be. So you don't want to leapfrog your heart. The first place of impact that you need to make with that kind of uh, spiritual discipline in your life is your household. Uh, you need to bring that kind of a life to bear on your household. You need to be exhorting and encouraging and training the others in your home to be this way. Modeling that for them. It doesn't matter if you're a kid and you're still living under your parents. It's time as you grow in Christ to say, how can I help bring God's word uh, in the gospel of Jesus to, to bear on the other lives in here? Dad, how can I help you uh, shepherd this household? Mom, how can I help you 
care for the others in this household. It doesn't matter if you're living alone. Have people into your house. If you're a single person, have people in your home as often as you can where you can care for people in your household. That's great training for the day when God gives you that forever roommate. Um, Prepares you well for marriage and for family. And obviously, if you're a husband or a wife, a mom or a dad, uh, you've got little ones and each other to care for well. And that's a discipline. It doesn't just happen. People can, who are well-intentioned as Christians, that they really want to be a godly husband, they really want to be a godly wife, um, it can happen that you'll, just, you, you'll think that this will just happen. I'll be and I'll do everything I need to do in my home, but you'll find out that you can live weeks, months, maybe even years, and you haven't really thought about it. So you have to really discipline yourself to think, um, I'm, I'm coming home, or my husband's on the way home, or the kids are just about to get back. Oh my goodness, am I ready to care for my family well with the Word of God, to be a godly man, to be a godly woman, to bring all that, God, you are doing in my life to bear on them? Um, So you want to be disciplined in this. You don't want to leapfrog over this. The church is full of scars and pockmarks on its walls and foundation is cracked because men leapfrogged over their hearts and over their households only to step into ministry and then everything blow up. Um, we don't want to be that kind of people. We want to make sure that we're taking one step right after the other, going back to these spiritual disciplines always. Then the third discipline then is, please, step into the lives of people. If you are shepherding your heart and you are shepherding your household, please, open your mouth. Um, take your hands out of your pockets and, and do good things for others. Serve one another. Love one another in the body. Become involved in your small group. Your impact on other people will be uh, will have a massive impact because you're a man or you're a woman of integrity. What you are at home, what you are in secret, when nobody else can see is what you are in your home, is what you will be with them. Um, so please, step into the lives of other people and minister to them. Uh, bring the gospel to bear on their life. Help them to think and look back at the cross and what the cross and empty tomb of Jesus accomplished for them. In terms of forgiveness of sin, the penalty paid by our precious substitute to atone for our sins, um, justification by faith, but also bring to bear the power of the gospel on living a new life. Um, the power of gospel of the gospel that we need to, to just be obedient to Jesus. Minister to people in the body with that precious gospel. Step into the lives of your neighbors, your, your children, uh, those who are not yet believers, your co-workers, your employees, your employer. Uh, care for people around you outside the church with the gospel. Um, that is what we are called to be as Christians primarily. Um, we do not want to just make assumptions that I'm a Christian, I know how to do that, got it. No, we want to be humble. We want to remind ourselves that we always need to be working on these things. And so we're turning them into like spiritual disciplines. We've got to work at these things uh, by God's grace, by God's grace. So there's the core of it. I pray that you will always just want to keep working on those disciplines in your life. Um, as elders, we know that we, ne- we never graduate from these things. We need his help always. So, this morning what we get to do is we get to think about the heart one more time from a unique passage. Um, And Smed, I'll let you tie that in for us. But um, Revelation chapter 2, the church at Ephesus, Jesus has some important things to say there. So, Smed, why don't you come up and um, lead us with that. Several months ago, 
we walked through uh, Revelation 2, 1-7 with some of the men. And uh, Scott asked if I would consider uh, opening this same passage with you this morning. And I'm thrilled to. This is a, a heartbeat passage and, and one that I like to go back to from time to time to remind myself of the most important things. Uh, Ephesians, or the church at Ephesus, is a church that gets addressed by Jesus specifically uh, by letter through John in the book of Revelation. This is something of an audit. And this is really a letter written to a church that had abandoned its first love, that had left its first love. And that's what we want to look at this morning. It is, it is easy easier to get something established, to run programs, to have the machinery of disciplines and miss the whole point of them. And oftentimes we start out doing things that we should do because we love Jesus. And it's also easy to abandon love for Jesus while keeping the machinery running. That is the state of the church at Ephesus. And I think it's a good paradigm for thinking about our own hearts, uh, for seeing not only Jesus' love for His church and His care for His church, uh, but also ways that we ought to care for our own hearts. Have you ever been audited? Either by the IRS or some internal audit uh, at work? What would it be like for a church to be audited? Not a financial audit. Not inspecting the books or the budgets or the payroll or regulatory compliance. But to get a rundown on how things are going spiritually, theologically, devotionally. To come under the scrutiny of the one who knows everything. All the ins and outs of your church intimately. For those things to come to light. What would it be like for Jesus to evaluate our church? What would it be like for Jesus to evaluate your life? What would he say? Chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation give just that thing. Seven churches receive a spiritual audit from Jesus himself. Let's read together Revelation chapter 2 in the first seven verses. We'll examine Jesus' audit of the church at Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not, and you found them to be false. You have perseverance for my name's sake, and you have endured, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. In this letter to the church at Ephesus, we have the opportunity to see the life of a church over several generations. 
and to see Jesus' personal assessment of that church. We know a little bit about the city of Ephesus uh, from history, from the New Testament, from other sources. Uh, Ephesus was the most important city in Asia. At the time of this letter, probably somewhere between a quarter to a half million people lived there. Politically, it was very important. All the Roman officials by law had to go through Ephesus whenever they were in Asia. It was sort of the first stop. And we're talking about what is now modern Turkey. It was on the seacoast. It was a, a remarkable port city, had lots of commerce. Socially, it was very important. They had games and entertainment, a 25,000-seat stadium and a theater. It was a very wealthy city. There were four Roman roads coming in and a, and a seaport. They spent massive amounts of money dredging the, the seaport from the silt that came in from the river just to keep the port open. They would move the entire city. It was called a city of change. They would move the entire city closer to the coast every time the seaport would get filled in with silt. Uh, today, the, the, the last uh, remnants of the ancient city of Ephesus are three miles from the coast. And they had to keep moving it. It was very, very important to the economics, to the politics, and to the religion of the area. There were two temples to the imperial cult. In the first century, the, the Roman emperors began uh, ascribing deified names to themselves and receiving and even demanding worship from the people. There were two temples to the cult of the emperor in Ephesus. And then the temple of Artemis was there. Uh, I lived in Nashville. And uh, Nashville replicated one of the ancient wonders of the world. And they replicated the Temple of Diana or the Temple of Artemis. It really is a remarkable structure. I've only seen the replica. I never saw the original. Uh, But the original was 425 feet by 220 feet by 60 feet. It was a massive structure with huge columns, uh, completely adorned with precious metals and gems. Uh, it It was considered the greatest shrine in the world at its time. 127 marble pillars and thousands of priests and priestesses. There was temple prostitution. Uh, It was a a, a shrine to the so-called goddess of love. And uh, it was considered a a haven for the worst of the worst criminals because it was an inviolable temple. You could commit just about any crime and you would be safe if you were clinging to one of these pillars inside the temple because nobody could get you to... It it was centuries later that uh, Roman arms and barbarians came in and destroyed that temple. Nobody would touch it. Uh, The the greatest bank in the ancient world was inside the center of this temple because nobody would think of violating uh, Diana's temple. So that was a center point to all of this. And the, 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 the temple was built, the shrine inside the temple was built like a great tree uh, as a a tree of safety and provision and fertility and and these kinds of things. The the church at Ephesus we know quite a bit about from the New Testament. Some of the prominent members and participants in this church would be Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos. Paul himself stayed there nearly three years. Timothy pastored there. And the Apostle John from 66 AD on uh, pastored in this church. That's, That's quite a collection of shepherds, of servants, of faithful people serving in this church. In Acts 19 and 20, we see the birth of the church at Ephesus. It was birthed under persecution. You had threats from the outside. You remember the seven sons of Sceva. Uh, Demetrius, the silversmith, because uh, he made idols to Diana. 
And if people quit worshiping Diana and they started worshiping Jesus, his business would go out of, uh, he would go out of business. And so he created a huge riot uh, to, to try to force the Christians to stop. From the very beginning, the church at Ephesus was, was birthed under persecution. If you read the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to this church, you see they are established in sound doctrine. The first three chapters are rich with theological truth, with things that Christians needed to know about God. In Ephesians 4, verse 14, they are instructed in the area of discernment. Paul writes to them, As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. In 4.17, they are commanded to walk differently than the world that surrounded them. This I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their minds. In chapter 5, starting in verse 6, Paul gives further instruction about deception. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these the things, because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Do not be partakers with them. You were formerly darkness, you are now light. You can see from the very beginning that the Ephesian church was cultured by God to be separate from the world and to be wary of deception to be warned about false teaching, to be encouraged toward discernment. Timothy was pastoring the church at Ephesus when Paul wrote to him first and second Timothy. And over and again, Paul warns Timothy about false doctrine, false teaching, false teachers, and their dangers to the church. By the time you get to Revelation chapter 2, you can imagine that the church at Ephesus had heard so much warning about false teaching that they may have inherited a bunker mentality. A bunker mentality. You know, the, uh, the preppers that will buy everything they can buy and uh, dig a hole underground and fit it out with a bowling alley and a theater and everything they need to live comfortably underground so as not to be touched by the coming apocalypse. Um, you can imagine a church that had been taught so well about truth and doctrine and rightness and the dangers of wrong theology. You can imagine them hunkering down, prepping, arming themselves in a walled fortress, protecting themselves from outside threats. What is Jesus' evaluation of the church at Ephesus? By the way, John is writing somewhere around 95 A.D., near the end of the first century. John himself is just a short distance away from Ephesus. He's in the middle of the sea on the island of Patmos. It's uh, kind of like the ancient Alcatraz. He's in jail, uh, alone, isolated on a rock in the middle of the sea because of his testimony for Jesus. And he's away from the people that he's loved, the, the churches that he has pastored, and he has given a great vision of the future. The What John has the opportunity to do is to give to the church that he loves a direct message from Jesus. How are they doing? How is the church at Ephesus after the days of Paul and Timothy and John? How are they faring in 95 AD? There's six elements to Jesus' evaluation of the church, Jesus' audit of the church. A salutation, a commendation, a confrontation, a command, a plea, and a promise. We're going to look at those six elements this morning. The first is a salutation, a greeting. 
Jesus introduces himself in Ephesians 2, or excuse me, Revelation 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. Jesus is writing a letter to the church, and he appeals first to the vision that we see in chapter 1. I wonder if I might have a volunteer this morning to read verses 9 to 20. Thank you, Bob Elliott, for volunteering. Did you read uh, Revelation 1, uh, 9 through 20? I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one, like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, when it had been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in his strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay, thanks Bob, appreciate that. As Jesus addresses the seven churches in these seven letters, in each of the letters he begins with a description of himself from the vision which Bob just read in chapter 1. And in the letter of the church at Ephesus, he identifies himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And John tells us in this vision what these emblems are. The stars, he says, are the angels of the seven churches. And the lampstands are the churches themselves. This is a picture of Christ's possession of the churches. He walks among them, He holds them, He cares for them. Jesus owns the churches, and He cares for the churches. This is a picture of His sovereignty and His care. It's also a picture of Jesus' presence among the churches. He inspects them. He knows what takes place in His churches. And it is a picture of Jesus' ability to remove lampstands. Jesus is present and sovereign and concerned in and among His churches. And a lampstand's purpose is to display light. The lampstand is not the lamp. 
Jesus himself is the lamp. Jesus is the light that the lampstands are to display. Jesus moves from this salutation to a commendation in verses 2 and 3, and part of a commendation in verse 6. It begins in verse 2, Jesus says, I know, I know. Think about that. Jesus knows what was going on in the church at Ephesus. And he knows better than any of the individual members could know. He knows more thoroughly, more accurately than the church corporately could know. There is a comfort here in Jesus' knowledge and also a conviction. Right? If you're in a, a suffering church, a persecuted church, a church filled with difficulty and hardship, Jesus knows. Jesus knows and he cares. You're under his sovereign good care. There's also a conviction here. If church isn't going the way Jesus wants church to go, he knows about that too. And notice Jesus says, I know your deeds, your toil, and your perseverance. Their deeds are their life and conduct in keeping with Christ's likeness. Jesus knows about their toil. That is, an all-out effort to the point of wearied exhaustion. He knows of their perseverance, that they were courageous. They accepted hardship, suffering, and loss. He knows of their intolerance. That is, their intolerance of evil men. Their ongoing inability to bear false teachers. Jesus commends them for this. And there was trouble outside for the church. The seven sons of Sceva, Demetrius, the angry mob in Acts 19. And then the temple of Artemis in John's day. The prominent feature of the culture of Ephesus was one of idolatry and immorality. The emperor cults were present. The Jews were present. The, the, the Jews in Ephesus who didn't like the fact that the Christians had been part of the Jewish identity. They wanted to separate themselves from being associated with the Christians. For a long time, the Christians were considered a cult or a sect of Judaism. Well, the Jews didn't like that label. You see, the Jews had special privilege in the Roman Empire. They had been granted special status for their religion. They were allowed to be monotheists. They were allowed to be what the Romans called atheists. That is, they didn't believe in the pantheon of gods, and they were not required to participate in the cult of Diana or the emperor worship. They were exempted from the requirements to get stamps of approval in order to trade in the guilds, in order to work. Uh, they didn't have to have the uh, requirements that everybody else had to have as a citizen, as a participant in Ephesus, that proved that you had, in fact, worshipped the emperor. The Jews were exempt from that. Well, the Christians, as long as they were seen as a segment of Judaism, would have been free, would have been exempt from the requirements of emperor worship. But as soon as the Jews said, hey, we don't want to be associated with those Christians, uh, then the, the Christians were out from under Judaism, as it were, and they were vulnerable. They were liable. And they had to meet the requirements of emperor worship, or else you can't buy, you can't sell, you can't work. So there was trouble outside for the church because of the Jews, because of the Romans, and because of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans were those inside the church or attempting to be inside the church who said, hey, you can call yourself a Christian and still live an immoral life. You can participate in the, in the culture of this city and still call yourself a Christian. You can have one foot in the world and one foot in the church, and that's okay. 
And it's quite possible that the Nicolaitans are named after Nicholas, one of the original proto-deacons in Acts 6. It can't be absolutely confirmed, but it's likely that that is their origination. That, that Nicholas, one of the early servants in the church, defected to a form of Christianity that was, in fact, worldly. And, and Jesus says, I hate those guys. <laughs> and they, they had trouble outside. They had trouble inside. They were false apostles. That is, those who were deluded and self-deceived deceivers. And these false apostles were not claiming to destroy Christianity. They were just offering a subtly new version of it from the inside, corrupting it. They were posers. They were wolves, false teachers. In fact, Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 29, even from among you elders will arise some who will lead others in the church away. False teachers will come from among the leadership at the church at Ephesus. Fast forward to AD 95, the church at Ephesus rejected those posers and they're commended by Jesus for it. Jesus says in verse 3, I know your endurance, your perseverance for my namesake. Here's a paradoxical commendation. You have toiled to the point of weariness and yet you are not weary for my namesake. The Ephesian church had practical holiness and theological discernment. They were uncomfortable with compromise and they suffered for the name of Jesus. They were exhausted in their loyalty to Christ, but they were not exhausted of their loyalty to Christ. They were mature, established, tested, and seasoned body of believers. But there's a confrontation from Jesus in verse 4, the next element of this audit. But... I have this against you. If we didn't have verse 4, we would say, wow, the Ephesian church is running on all cylinders. They are flying down the tracks. This is a successful church. What would it be like to have Jesus say, I have something against you? As a church, as a Christian, this is the scary part of the audit. And Jesus' words here are sobering. You have left your first love. You have left your first love. The word here for left is the word used for divorce. It is a sad and definite departure, an abandonment. What is this first love? Is this love for God? Is this love for fellow believers? Is this love for the lost? By the way, Jesus doesn't intend here a love of first priority. He means the love you had at the first, right? The, the honeymoonish love, the, the, the early period of affection and adoration in the church. He's not talking about what you should love above all things. He's talking about the love that characterized the church in its infancy. I believe that the love that Jesus had in mind involves all three of these and flows out of the first. Love God flows into love of the brethren and overflows into love of the lost. What is the greatest commandment? To love God. What is the second? To love others. Jesus told us that He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He told us to love our neighbors and then He tells us that our neighbors are everybody. If you love Jesus, you will be drawn to love what He loves. Jesus loves His bride, the church. 
If we say that we love God, but we do not love our brother, we are liars and the truth is not in us. We are deceived about our love for God. You cannot love God and merely have doctrinal fidelity and an inability to compromise while you fail to love people. It's impossible. Love for the brethren and love for others flow out of love for Christ. If you notice your love for others waxing cold, that is an indication that your love for Jesus has gone cold. If you love Christ supremely, you will love His bride. And if you love Christ supremely, you will not be able to help telling others about Him. Right? The best evangelism flows out of an unstoppable, unquenchable, uncorked love for Jesus. When you can't get enough of Jesus, when you just overflow with your affections and your adoration of Him, it will overflow into your conversations with unbelievers. And you'll be unashamed, unembarrassed. You won't be trying to fish around for, man, how do I start out a clever way to get into the gospel? (laughs) Some of that fear just melts when you're in love with Jesus, when your affections are hot for Him. What does Jesus say about His church at Ephesus? Love for Christ had gone cold. The Ephesian church was guilty of doing lots of works on the lampstand without paying much attention to the light for which the lampstand exists. How good is a lampstand without a lamp? Imagine your favorite lamp in your house. You polish it, you shine it, you put it in a prominent place. No light bulb, no candle. No, it's just, what, what good is it? It's a paperweight. It is a mere ornament, and it, it, the attention is drawn to the lampstand. What is the point of a lampstand? The point of a lampstand is to make the light prominent. You have a really nice lampstand there. You've been polishing that thing forever. Um, where's the lamp? What good is it? Doctrinal purity, theological fidelity, suffering under persecution. Those things are intended to be a platform for the light of Christ to shine. When you're enduring for His namesake, it is supposed to be a platform for which people can see Jesus. Not say, wow, your endurance is awesome. Jesus is the light. Our love for Him can grow dim while we're busy doing things for Him. It's very easy. I know this in my own heart life. I'm sure you know this as well. Practical holiness, theological discernment, intolerance for compromise, heresy hunting. These things are not designed to be the fuel of a long-lasting church. The fuel of the church is fervent, personal love for God through Jesus Christ. In verse 5, Jesus moves to the command. He gives a command here. And I just love Jesus' care for the church. This is a stinging indictment. But there's grace here. There's an opportunity for correction. And Jesus gives several commands. Remember, repent, and return. He says, remember. And this is a a present tense command. It's a keep on remembering from where you have fallen. You have fallen, and you are presently in a fallen state. Keep on remembering from where you fell. This is Jesus' command. And then a second command, uh, a deliberate, decisive change is required here. He says, repent. This is a 
a desire, a demand for a decisive change. You decide right now to to enlist a lasting change, a a resolute change in action, a change in attitude resulting in a change of behavior. You make that decision right now. And a third command, return. Another decisive, deliberate, immediate command. Return. Do the things you used to do when your love for me was at the center. Do the things you used to do when your love for me was at the center. The Ephesian church had allowed the fruits of love for Christ to replace love for Christ. Doctrinal fidelity, discernment, moral rectitude, uncompromising loyalty, these things all originated from love for Christ. But subtly, imperceptibly, they had replaced love for Christ. It's very easy to do. You work hard to formulate a doctrinal statement for yourself. Because I love Jesus. I want to be loyal to Him. I want to take His words at face value. I want to believe every word and I want to live by every word. So I'm going to write all this down. Make yourself a nice doctrinal statement. And you fight for it. Because you love Jesus. The heart waxes cold. The affections go away. But you've still got this piece of paper. And you might be ready to get in heated arguments with people who would disagree with any jot or tittle of this piece of paper you wrote down. But not because you love Jesus. You've abandoned that while you've held on to the machinery, to the fruit of your love for Jesus, which has now replaced your love for Jesus. The blazing center of the Christian life was set aside by the fruits of the blazing center. How does this happen? church is birthed in the gospel and everything is new. It's a honeymoon. Brand new believers who love Christ. Listen, at Ephesus, they burned their magic books. Do you remember the scene? 50,000 days wages. 50,000 days wages burned by the members of the Ephesian church in the city square. We are abandoning the stuff we used to go after because we love Jesus. They gladly faced rejection and persecution they were willing to be isolated. They, they faced outside trouble that, that then promoted more isolation and protectionism. You can see how this would happen. Listen, the world is against us. It's us and them. Gradually, love for the lost goes away because we've got to protect ourselves from the lost. Right? We, if we're going to protect sound doctrine, if we're going to protect our love for Christ, we... We need, to, we need to make the walls of this castle a lot higher. We need some engines that will throw rocks over the walls. We need to dig a moat. We need to get some boiling oil. and We need to keep people out if we're going to be faithful. So that outside trouble produces an inside defensiveness and more isolation and protectionism. And then inside trouble in the church, if you get inside defectors, if you get Judases, right? if you get... Elders who defect morally or theologically, that's going to breed skepticism and suspicion with inside the walls of your little castle. Who's next? Is it going to be him or him? Who's going to defect next? And, And all of a sudden, you're looking over your shoulder everywhere you go for the next defection. Pretty soon, everyone is skeptical. Who's going to compromise? Who's going to teach something that's off theologically? 
And it's not long before a church begins to pride itself in its theological purity, its moral integrity, its ability to discern error within and without. Instead of its boast being Jesus, the church's boast becomes its ability to discern. The central thing, the thing that makes a church a church, the reason the lampstand exists, the fire and the light of Jesus, is no longer shining. A generation has gone by since the book of Ephesians was penned, and the church at Ephesus is in danger of going out of existence. The machinery of the church is still operating. The doors are open on Sundays. Sermons are preached. Songs are sung. Error is pointed out. Sin is exposed. Compromisers are run out of town. But the defining characteristic of the church, the defining characteristic of a Christian, is gone. Love has left the building. And it's not a trifle. This is a fatal flaw. Look at Jesus' warning in verse 5. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen. Repent, do the deeds you did at first, or else. Or else. I am coming to you, and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Jesus tells, or else I'm coming. This is not a reference to Jesus' final return. Rather, this is an immediate, personal corrective to be made by Jesus with the church at Ephesus. A church cannot survive on just being against things. You can't define yourself merely by what you are against. A church must be characterized by, defined by, and driven by love. Love is to be the lifeblood of the church. And if it is not, according to Jesus, it can no longer exist. To be useful to Christ, you must be inflamed with love for Christ, or you will be removed from usefulness as a lampstand. There's a gracious plea in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear to what the Spirit says to the churches. I used to watch the Dukes of Hazard as a kid, Channel 11, 7 o'clock at night on Fridays. And every single time, somebody said something like this. This is crazy cooter coming at you. You got your ears on? What is he saying? You got your ears on. Um, he's saying, are you on the frequency? Can you hear my voice over the sound of this radio? And listen, you, you couldn't hear crazy cooter unless you had your CB radio turned on and the volume up. Which means you had to own one, and you had to be in your car, and it had to be turned on. Okay, That is the appeal here. Uh, those born of the Spirit are going to hear spiritual words from Jesus. Do you have your ears on? Can you hear what I'm saying to you? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Right, The natural man cannot praise these things. They are spiritual. You who are spirit, hear. This is like what Jesus says. Um, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus says this multiple times in the parables where he's speaking things that the world is not going to understand, uh, but his disciples will understand. This is designed to awaken the conscience of the faithful amidst the compromise of others. And I love what God does here. He, He immediately applies this universally to all churches. This is not one of those passages where you just say, well, this is just written to the church at Ephesus in AD 95 and has no direct bearing on my life. No, I love what God has done here providentially in His Word, has said very intentionally, the one who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church at Ephesus. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. 
all of these letters, all seven of these audits from Jesus were designed to be heard, heeded by all the churches that would succeed them, follow after them in church history. This letter was written to Grace Bible Church. There is application for us very directly. And notice the promise in verse 7. To him who overcomes, the nikao, the, the overcomer is, is where we get our word Nike, our brand name Nike. What is an overcomer? Overcoming here is not the idea that Christians were able to overcome the Roman Empire or overcome the, the, the temple cult of Diana. An overcomer here is a term John uses for a believer. Listen to 1 John chapter 5. Verse 4, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Same word. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. What is an overcomer? Not one who's able to win a temporal victory against the mighty Roman Empire. An overcomer is one who remains faithful to Jesus to the end. It's a Christian. An overcomer is a Christian. To the one who overcomes, and listen to this promise, I will give to him the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In each one of these letters, Jesus does something else, something very interesting. He addresses a promise based on some prominent feature in whatever city the letter is addressing. In the case of Ephesus, the prominent feature of the temple of Artemis was this giant tree, which was called paradise. And Jesus says, okay, you live in Ephesus. I understand the, the, everything that's going on in your city. I know where you live. But to the one who overcomes, I will give to him to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What is this? This is the promise of eternal life to believers. Genuine believers are those who overcome and inherit the promises of God. The temple of Artemis and its tree was an asylum for unrepentant criminals. The tree of life of the paradise of God is the promise of eternal life in the presence of God for those who repent and believe in Jesus. Well, how did the church respond? Church history tells us that Ephesus repented collectively as a church. They began to function again as a witness, an effective witness to the love of Christ for at least another generation. We get this from Ignatius. But it didn't last long. Today, the city is uh, part of a secular Islamic state with very little representation of Christ. You can't go to Ephesus Bible Church. <laughs> it's been scrubbed. At some point down the line, the church at Ephesus was removed as a lampstand. I don't know how long history will continue. It's likely that Grace Bible Church will be removed as a lampstand. And why do I say that? Um, because every one of us and the church collectively has it in us to defect. We have what it takes to defect. And church history would tell us that no individual local church has lasted very long. What has lasted? Jesus' bride. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will build my church and Smedley's wicked heart will not prevail against it. <laughs> or anything in between. God is faithful. 
He will keep his lampstand, but he will remove any individual lampstand that fails to live up to what it is for. What is the application for us nearly 2,000 years later? There's a number I could think of. You could probably think of a number of applications too. I'll just suggest some, maybe to get the, uh, the pump primed. One application is this. Do not be content with doctrinal error. Don't be content with doctrinal error. Jesus said, I hate the Nicolaitans. Those who said, yeah, you can be a faithful follower of Jesus and still love the world, still participate in immorality. Jesus says, I hate them. And Jesus commends the Ephesian church for hating them. So you and I ought not be content with doctrinal error. Likewise, not comfortable with moral compromise. Listen, the the false teachers, the false apostles, those who would compromise the truth or compromise the holiness of the church ought not be tolerated. The church at Ephesus is commended for these things. Don't be naive about false teachers within the church. Just because someone says they're a Christian doesn't mean they're a Christian. Just because someone says lots of correct doctrinal formulation doesn't mean that they actually have it right. Listen, the the best false teachers are those who say a lot of true things. Best. I, I I don't want to confuse the issue. The most effective false teachers are those who speak lots of truth. A really interesting study in recent church history is the rise and fall of seminaries, training institutions for pastors. Um, How did they start out and why did they fall apart? I've been wondering, why can I not recognize the people in the back row? It's much better. Oh, hey, Shag. Good to see you. Okay. Uh, Fuller Seminary is a really interesting study. How did Fuller Seminary go from being a a bastion of training of faithful pastors to being a, a promoter of things that aren't in keeping with the Scriptures? Well, they had a desire for a broad, theological, academic credibility. And they hired professors who could sign off on the doctrinal statement while meaning something different by the words that the statement intended. So people could say, I believe X, Y, Z doctrine. Of course, what I mean by that is different than what they mean by that. And knowing this, these faculty were hired And from the inside, they began to sow seeds of doubt in people who would go out to be pastors of churches. And they would sow seeds of doubt about things like miraculous events recorded in the New Testament. The reliability of the scriptures themselves. They would undermine inerrancy, infallibility, and the doctrines of soteriology and the person of Christ. And they would do that as teachers of pastors. And those pastors go out with those doctrines and teach churches. And that is one seminary among just about all of them in recent church history that have done the same thing. It almost seems like an inevitable pathway in institutions, whether academic institutions or individual churches. You and I better not be naive about false teaching 
and how false teaching gets a foothold in the church. The church will be undone if the truth loses out to false teaching. And the church will be undone if holiness is replaced by immorality. And listen, nobody sneaks immorality in the church by saying, Hey, I want to promote abandonment to Christ through idolatry and immorality. Who wants to follow me? No, it gets couched in other terms. It gets brought in like a Trojan horse. Hey, you know what? Legalism's really bad. So you need to loosen your collar a little bit if you're going to love Jesus. It's very easy. You and I better not be naive about it. Doctrinal precision, moral rectitude, and heresy hunting, as a response to these things, do not define a healthy church. They're essential. You and I have to be very careful about drawing a dichotomy between truth and love. Listen, where in your Bible are truth and love enemies? Don't fall into the trap when people say, oh yeah, you, you guys are all about truth but not love, or yeah, whatever. That, truth that doesn't manifest itself in love for God, love for the church, and love for others is not true truth. And love that abandons doctrinal fidelity in the name of love is not love. These things are not at odds. They're not enemies in God's mind. And they need not be pitted against each other in ours. So we need to not be content with doctrinal error. And we must not be content with doctrinal fidelity that lacks love. We need to work hard to maintain the fire of love for Christ in the heart. And we have to be very careful to not let the machinery of doing church overrun the primacy of doing love. It's much easier to to show up, run the program, serve an NGM, preach a sermon, lead worship, do the mechanical things. It's way easier to just show up on schedule and do the thing than it is to cultivate real, fiery affection for Jesus in the heart that then overflows into those things. You can lose love for Jesus and still keep the thing going. And we dare not do that. As a church, as individuals, we must continually cultivate warm, affectionate, deep, personal love for Jesus Christ who loved us and gave Himself up for us. What would Jesus say about your life? What would He say about your heart? What would He say about Grace Bible Church? I'd love to ask you, maybe take a, just a few volunteers, how do you cultivate love for Jesus personally? When you feel the love fires for Jesus growing cold in your own heart, maybe it's only me, um, counsel me. How, how, how do you cultivate love for Jesus? Sarah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really helpful. You can do that. 
you can confess, you can actually say to God, I know I'm not loving you the way I should. It's a great thing to confess. He already knows it. (laughs) By the time we realize it, uh, we're several steps behind God. But again, God gives a gracious corrective and a plea and a promise. Confess it. It's great. Thank you, sir. What else do you do to cultivate love for Jesus? Yeah. Um, Reflecting on truth, reflecting on the disparity between where my affections should be and where they are, and then asking God for help. Ask God for help. That is a a great resource. And, you know, your your emotions are not a reliable guide, um, but they eventually illustrate the truths you cling to. You know, your, your emotions are sort of unpredictable. Um, but the but the big picture of your emotions is they reflect what's going on in your in your thinking in the truth that you know and hold. Um, so, go to truths from Scripture. Absolutely, Lori. I think realizing that love is we don't ever not love anything. We're always mm-hmm. loving something, and so if our love for God has gone gone cold, we are loving something else instead. And um, just our God has become too small. Mm-hmm. So focusing on His holiness, going to Isaiah like you're having mm-hmm. us do, um, realizing how big our God is, um, everything else just kind of melts away. Yeah, yeah. Did everybody, everybody, hear what Lori said. Um, we always love something. So taking a look at what we are comparing God to in our hearts. And, and go back to God's truth. What, what do we know about Him? Uh, what does the Scripture say about who God is and what He has done and what He promises? Uh, in the comparison, let the love of inferior things melt in the, the big picture of who God really is. Absolutely. Jeff? To add to that, the, the things that we would most likely love are things that serve ourselves. So we are loving ourselves and that's our idol. So to do, if we just go back and go through our build homework, look at Psalm 119 and it, it just tells us of God's faithfulness, His greatness, His absolute perfection. Hmm. And we are not that. To realize that. What a great application on the last day of Build and Wellspring. Do your Build and Wellspring homework. Thanks, Jeff. That was good. Yeah, yeah I don't know if you heard the first part of, of what Jeff said, but um, our idolatries are really a, a love of self. And uh, Psalm 119 is a great place to go to get a, a refreshed view of who God is and who we are and how much we need Him. Shag? Uh, I was thinking really good at confessing sin to God and then not really repenting of it. 
So I find it really helpful to not only confess sin to God, but um, confess to, confess that same sin to guys in my small group. Yeah. Accountability. They, they, they work hard to ask me about it later and how are you doing with that, you know? Yeah. Um, that's super helpful in my repositioning my love for. And you just made a really important distinction because recognizing sin is not the same thing as confessing it. And confessing sin is not the same thing as repenting from sin, turning from it and replacing it with righteousness. Um, sometimes we think, oh yeah, I'm a sinner, you got me. And we move on from there as if the deal is done. Well, it's not done. Um, so moving to confession and moving to repentance are very important. What's interesting about Jesus' order of the Ephesian church Jesus does the recognizing sin and confessing sin for them. It's not really confession. He just calls them out. (laughs) Um, And it's their job. It's already been recognized um, and put out on the table. And it's up to them to do specific things. Remember, return, repent. Um, And and having people in our lives to help us with that is is really important. Scott? It helps me regularly in my, my time alone with the Lord to walk through God's design for salvation and the role that Christ played and what role I did not play. And all that took place in my life when Christ was at the cross, all of my sin was distracted from me before I was even born. It's placed on Christ and Christ suffered for that. And when I say the part of that, I, I become more appreciative of what Christ has done. My love has been based on the yeah. That's very helpful to me. One of my dad's college roommates was the co-pilot on Air Florida Flight 90 that went into the Potomac River, um, killed almost everybody on board, six survivors. Um, one of the survivors is a woman, you know, treading water in the icy cold river. Uh, you know, the, the, the wreckage of the plane broke the ice as it went into the river. It's the middle of the snowstorm. And a uh, guy driving by, a uh, local... Uh, clerk in a DC office um, uh, takes off his boots jumps into the river um, goes and rescues her um, helps tie she, the helicopter brought a rope down to her she could not get her numbed fingers to grip the rope this man jumped in grabbed her grabbed the rope tied it around her and helped get her hoisted she survived you know he lived um, she would never have been embarrassed to talk about her rescuer you know, if you and I can think about, I just got pulled out of the icy Potomac River by that guy. Um, we would not be embarrassed to have affections for him, to tell everybody about him, to uh, be... I mean, you and I need to have fresh remembrances of our rescue. And that will inflame love for Jesus. You, you almost need to smell the singed hairs on your arm from the fires of hell. Right? You, you got rescued. Um, that should be enough. So recall that. Rehearse the gospel. That's good. Anything else? Tom? Yeah, it's probably wrapped up in what everybody said in those two words. When my heart is cold, it's either my unbelief in what Scripture says or my pride in thinking I know what's better than what the Lord has. Can you flesh that out a little bit, Tom? Why, why, why those two things? Sure. Uh, simply speaking, unbelief. Just go to one verse, Romans 8, 28. 
that I know that God has allowed this, has ordained this. He knows that he's, I should know that He's working all things for good for those that love Him. Or, or the pride is thinking I, I'm wise in my own eyes, I know what is best. Hmm. Thanks, Tom. Scott. Another one that um, I find really helpful for me is uh, to be surrounded by other people who really love Jesus. Um, and you can do that, obviously, in person, at church, and another fellowship that you have. But, but be friends, good friends, close friends, with other people who um, love Jesus more than you. And, uh, learn from them and draw near to them, steal some of their heat that they give off. Mm-hmm. And also, God has been so gracious to over the centuries preserve the writings of men and women in the past who loved Jesus more perfectly than anybody. And you need to make a regular practice every year to read at least one good book. It's not so much that you need to read a lot of books, you just need to read the right books and you need to read a few of them. Um, and find some good books, some, some old dead guys who were very alive for Jesus and master their writing. Um, learn what, what it was like for them to um, fight against the cold part. They're just like you. They, it's not that they were in a cold war. Um, they felt their cold part more than you do. Mm-hmm. And you can learn from that and, and benefit from that. So make a regular attempt to draw near to yeah, one of the benefits of those old dead guys is they couldn't entertain away their coldness of heart. You know, if I'm feeling cold in heart, I'd go watch a movie, you know, go do something else. We just have lots of things at our disposal to fill our time as opposed to just, oh, I got my affections are off. They're wayward. I need to fix this. Um, so we have a lot to learn in that. Thanks, Scott.